0: Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and we've got a special treat for you all today. I'm delighted to welcome veteran journalist and author William Green. William has spent much of the past couple of decades interviewing many of the world's most influential investors for a slew of the world's top publications, including Time, Fortune, Forbes, Bloomberg, The Economist, and The New Yorker. He's worked on several books, but last year he published The Brilliant, Richer, Wiser, Happier, which I'm sure many of you have read, and if you haven't, I recommend that you do. The book draws on hundreds of hours of interviews with more than 40 of the world's most successful investors, from John Templeton to Charlie Munger, to help shed light on how to win in markets and in life. William, thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thank you, Mary. I'm I'm delighted to be here with you.
0: Well, I was delighted when you told me that your dad was a loyal IC subscriber. Was that that might have been in the days of the legendary Harold Wincott.
1: <laughs> you know what I didn't tell you, that I, I sort of... Um, did this intentionally. is my my father died 18 years ago today. So I actually scheduled our interview on the day of his death anniversary. So in some sense this was my my way of paying tribute to my father who loved the investor's chronicle and um loved uh yeah, loved the stock market. Wasn't a great investor. Didn't have a great temperament for it, but was a passionate investor and I think one of the reasons why I became obsessed with investing is that I remember as a child I would see him sitting in our living room in London, reading the Investor's Chronicle, reading the Financial Times, sitting there with a glass of whiskey and sort of checking his stocks. And and so I think I had this sense that there was a magic in the stock market. And and so, yeah, it feels very fitting to be doing this today in honor of my, my late father. So I hope he's he's looking down Barry Green and, and, and thinking, God, how come my son is actually talking to, to this journalist from my favorite publication? So thank you for having me on today.
0: Well, what a lovely story. I hope we do proud. You start the book by saying that you've been obsessed with investing for over 25 years. You've said in podcasts that you wanted to sort of learn how to make money. I think you were already a journalist when you started investing, but I wondered why you stuck with writing about investing rather than being a money manager yourself.
1: Yeah, it was probably a dumb decision. I would have become much, much wealthier if I had uh, gone into investing. Even if I had been a mediocre investor, but was doing it professionally, I probably would have become wealthier than a a very successful journalist or, or author. So it was probably a poor decision on my part. But I think one of the things that I learned from working on this book and from interviewing so many great investors is that I'm not them. There's a huge gap between their skills and mine. And also temperamentally, they're much better wired for this game than I am. So I tend to be fairly fearful fairly anxious somewhat pessimistic in the way that many journalists tend to be we always assume that the world is going to hell which is probably pretty good for a journalist because you can you can write about all the awful things that could happen which makes for engaging journalism but it's not great for an investor you need to have some faith in the future that it's all it's all going to work out so I, i don't think i was wired well for the game and when i see the best investors i can just see they're optimized for this game in, in a way that I'm, I'm just not. And I, I remember Charlie Munger, who was um, this brilliant 98-year-old polymathic genius who's been Warren Buffett's partner for the last 40 or so years. He said at one point um, that if, for example, you he, he said you have to play games that you can win. So he said, for example, if you're five foot one, you don't want to become a basketball player and play against people who are eight foot three. He said, you've got to find something that, A, you have an advantage at, B, you have a, a deep, passionate interest in. I'm, I'm interested in investing, but I, I don't think I would want to spend my life sitting there poring over financial statements and, and going to visit companies. I, I'm, I'm more interested in things like the psychology of great investors, what makes them uh, so well suited to this game, and how they deal with questions like the fact that the future is unknowable and that everything is changing, and yet we have to make decisions that are rational about the future. That's a sort of it's an almost philosophical question, which really interests me and has great practical ramifications, both in investing and life. So those are those are the things that possess me, and I I I wish I just wanted to sit in a room like Warren Buffett with the blinds shut and just read annual reports. I'd be I'd be a a, a much wealthier man, but but maybe maybe not wiser. Who knows?
0: <laughs> well, you've certainly had a very interesting career with unprecedented access from what i can see to some of the biggest legends in the field um you you talked a bit about not having the right um personality traits yourself but one thing that struck me from reading the book is is that there are a lot of commonalities between the people that you feature many of them live remotely are described as pragmatic contrarian thinkers resilient they all read huge amounts um what do you think are the most important commonalities between the successful investors and to what extent do you think these can be learned?
1: One of them is simply that they're very unemotional and dispassionate. So they're looking they're looking at the markets in this very rational, dispassionate way, waiting for opportunities where the odds of success outweigh the odds of failure. So I think of someone like like um, Howard Marks, for example, who manages something like $160 billion or so at, at Oaktree Capital Management. I remember during the financial crisis, for example, in 2008, 2009, when everyone was profoundly panicked and it seemed like the world was coming to an end, Howard said, well, most of the time the world doesn't end. And so he's just sitting there very quietly, very dispassionately watching the markets go to hell And he says, sometimes the prices are so low that actually while everyone else seems to think the risk is heightened, the risk is actually lower because you're able to buy such bargains. So so over a period of something like 15 weeks, he and his partner, Bruce Cash, invested something like 500 to 600 million dollars a week. So they bet something like 10 billion dollars, made a profit of of nine billion. And I said to him later, was that, was that difficult for you? Was it emotionally difficult? And he said, no, no, I don't remember it being difficult at all. And I knew that he'd been divorced before. So I said, w- were you always unemotional? And was it a problem in your relationships? And he's like, oh, yeah, particularly in my first marriage. And, and he's like, I've, I've got a bit better lately. And so that's just a, a temperamental advantage that someone like that has, that they're not, they're not caught up in the emotion of the market. So if you think of most of us, we're getting swept up in the in the fear and the greed and the euphoria so i I found this myself recently where i I would be interviewing people who had made a fortune on bitcoin and the like and it drove me nuts I kept thinking wait am i am, am I missing out do I need to get in on the game and you feel this emotional yearning to get in on the game and then at the same time I'm like but i but I don't understand it I don't understand if this is actually how do I value this is it just a fad is it just another outbreak of of irrational exuberance. And then I would talk to someone like Joel Greenblatt, who's one of the great investors of all time. And he just said, yeah, no, it's no problem for me not to play that game. I, I know what game I'm playing, which is buying stocks cheap and not buying things that I don't understand. And and so that kind of rational, dispassionate ability to step back from the market and just say, uh, no, this is the game that I'm equipped to win. That's, that, that, that is something that we can learn to say, to ourselves is this a game that i'm equipped to win and if it's not a game that you're equipped to win temperamentally intellectually emotionally in terms of your 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 knowledge you can step back and say well let me outsource this to someone who's better suited to doing it let me hire a fund manager who's better at this game who's who's got a better temperament Or well, let me just index let me let me invest in in index funds so that i'm not having to uh, to, to try to beat the market so let me so the game I'll play is just to keep expenses very low i'll have I'll have no uh no trading expenses lower taxes um and I'll just keep adding to the pot consistently over many years so that's a way of stacking the odds in your favor just by saying uh, let, let me let me admit my own frailties and my own limitations instead of playing games that I'm not equipped to win
0: yeah, that's very interesting. I think one of the reasons I found your book so profound is that it's about so much more than investing, and I guess the clue to that's in the title. But you mentioned um, Howard Marks and his divorce. The book, you talk about Jean-Marie Eviard talks of not spending enough time with his daughters. Laura Gerrits talks of, um, you know, time getting away with her and not having children, which she sometimes regrets. Um to what extent do you think the traits of being a good investor might not be the successes that you think they are for for life in general
1: there's definitely an intensity to these people i i think if 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 you want to really succeed at an outlandish level in any profession whether it's being a an a olympic skier or a jumper or a, an author or uh, an investor, you've got to be intense. And and I, I, Charlie Munger read the book and 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 was incredibly flattering, thankfully, about the book. And and um, a, a friend of mine video Charlie Munger saying uh, he 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 asked Charlie, uh, what what did you like about the book? What did you find interesting? Were there any insights you found interesting? And one of the things Charlie said is, yeah, how many of us ended up getting divorced? And <laughs> And he said, it kind of made sense because the game is so captivating. It's so all-consuming that we ended up neglecting our spouses in many cases. And I, I, that's, that's just one of those conflicts in life where you have to decide what are you prepared to sacrifice? How much are you prepared to sacrifice? And, but, but the intensity is striking. I, there's a, there was a wonderful story that Bill Miller once told me. Bill, Bill um, was probably the most successful fund manager of his mutual fund manager of his generation. And he was talking to me about meeting this um, this friend of his, Will Danoff, who manages something like $250 billion at Fidelity and has an amazing record over the last 30 years. And he said when he first met Danoff, um, someone introduced them at a conference in Phoenix. And he said, I I, I held out my hand to him and I said, uh, hi, Will, nice to, nice to meet you. And he said, Will Danoff wouldn't shake his hand. And he just looked at him and, and he said, I'm going to beat you, man. I'm going to beat you. And I just thought that was such a wonderful insight into the intensity of these people. And, and there's a guy called Paul Lancis I interviewed, who said to me, look, you, you don't get to be Roger Federer without playing tennis. And so I think it it, 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 you, you do have to ask yourself, is it, is it a game that you're passionate about that you, that you care enough about that you're going to actually try to beat the market. And, and for me, i'm weirdly obsessive about the things i write about i can i can sit around reading about philosophy and spirituality and psychology and things like that pretty much endlessly it doesn't feel like work to me and then i see the connections between that and investing things like dealing with uncertainty dealing with change i'll i'll be reading books on on buddhist buddhist principles and i'll be thinking oh it's really interesting they're dealing with the fact that everything changes that everything's impermanent and it's totally linked to markets and the fact that everything changes and it is, is impermanent. So that, for me, that's not work. I'm seeing, I'm, I'm doing that for pleasure. I think that's much the same with the greatest investors. It's not really work for them to sit around studying markets. It's 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 more an addiction for them. Uh, it's it's probably harder actually to focus on the other areas of their life.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. You do um, talk a lot in the book about it. It being a a game of odds. Um, you say that Templeton, Bogle, Rain, Buffett, Munger and Miller have figured out shrewd ways to stack the odds in their favour. If investing is a game of working out the odds, do you think this might be getting harder as um, technology has led to a rise in intangible assets which can be harder to value and perhaps as index funds become a more dominant force?
1: I do think it's harder. I think there are many more qualified people competing. And so in the old days, if you were Ben Graham, for example, who was Buffett's great teacher, you could look around and, and see all of these companies that, that were incredibly cheap and that very few people noticed were cheap. Nobody really cared. And so you had a tremendous advantage. Now, since then, we have so many people who are CFAs, who've got MBAs, who are, are kind of qualified to, to, to study stocks and, and the like. So you're competing with all of them then you've got all of these machines that are picking up these these little um uh mispricings in the market so 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 the competition is intensified on the other hand the markets are still driven by the same emotional crazinesses as ever it's still driven by fear euphoria excess greed all of these things those 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 human emotions are always going to create mispricings. And so if you're somebody who has emotional control and you have a few principles that, are, that, that you understand and that guide you through this craziness, you can step back and, and, and just wait for the market to do something nutty. And, and so I think of, I had a lovely example of this the other day where there's a, there's a guy I invest with who I, I, I won't name him, was a very smart young hedge fund manager, really nice guy. Um, who just owns about 12 stocks. And I just looked at his recent um, annual, uh, his recent quarterly report, and he bought a big position in Peloton. And that's just really interesting to me. Here's a company that had fallen something like 85%. Um, Everyone knew that Peloton was a disaster, that the the company had overexpanded, that it was a bubble. But it's like, I, I use a Peloton pretty much every day. I love my Peloton. It's an amazing company. They keep um, they keep adding more value to, to, to um, your experience of using it. And so at a certain price, it was crazy, right? And it became a bubble stock and it, I think it had a, I'm, I'm not touting this as a pick, what do, what do I know? But it had a it had a market value of what, $50 billion or something. But now that it's crashed, or, or at least when it had crashed a couple of weeks ago, he's looking at it and he's just like, yep, yeah, now it's very cheap. And so to have that kind of temperament where you can step back from the craziness and just calmly and rationally say, "Is this worth more than the market believes it's worth?" That's 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 always going to be something that works, I think. And so you just have to have a few very fundamental principles that guide you through the mess. And so one of, one of the things that Joel Greenblatt, who's one of the most successful hedge fund managers of all time, said, is I. I just want to value a business and then buy it for much less than it's worth. He's like, that's the entire essence of investing. And so you have to say, well, mm. am I equipped to value a business? Do I know how to value a business? And, and I don't. So I had a vague sense that Peloton was, was probably cheap at that point, and that it probably was not going to go bust, and that it's probably a great, a, a great business. But I don't. Re- that's, that's more instinctive. I don't really have a grip on it. Whereas my friend, this hedge fund manager, is actually able to analyze it and say, "Yep, it's cheap now." And, and now suddenly we're seeing all these companies like like Amazon and Apple and Nike are all said to be looking to uh, with interest about whether 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 to buy the company. So that's just a, a a a small but I think emblematic example of how yeah the game is still hard, but if you keep your wits about you and you 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 understand the principles of the game, and then you just wait then then the opportunities will present themselves
0: yeah it's interesting have you observed significant changes in the in the investment process of people that you've interviewed over the course of their career because it's quite um john templeton famously said the most dangerous words in investing are it's different this time but investors also have to navigate a changing world you've got Azim saying saying that technology is developing at an exponential rate. You know, the way companies are valued has had to be adjusted. How do you think investors can reconcile these two forces? And, and to what extent have you seen um, investors change their process?
1: I think one of the things that's striking to me is how a lot of the great value investors, which tends, tends to be my tribe, I'm temperamentally drawn to the great value investors, they used to buy stuff that was just incredibly cheap based on um, current assets. They, they would look at something that was kind of busted and they would say, yeah, yeah, this is so cheap. I'm going to buy it now. And someone like Bill Miller, who I've interviewed probably for 80, 90, 100 hours over the last 20 years, I was interviewing him recently and he said, no, I'm, I've am i actually kind of updated that. Like I I can look at things and say, well, it's cheap to what I think it's going to be worth in, an, in in the future. So I can look at something. He, he, for example, bought Amazon 20 or so years ago, bought a massive position in Amazon, both personally and through his fund, where most people thought it was massively overvalued. It, it was money losing. And um, a lot of people thought it was gonna go bankrupt at the time the stock had fallen literally to, from $90 to $6 a, a share. And he bought 15% of the company. And so he's looking at that and he's saying, well, I think it could be worth an enormous amount if this works out. And if I'm right, I'm going to make 50 times my money. And if I'm wrong, I'll lose 100% of my money. And so he's done a similar thing with Bitcoin where he's made an enormous amount on Bitcoin over the last few years, which he started buying 200 to $300 a coin. And he made just vast sums personally on it because he's looking at things and he's saying, in the future, it will be, it, it could be worth an enormous amount. And so that's a sort of, that's an updating of the principle of buying things at a discount that I think is really interesting. That is where he's 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 willing to to look at the future in a way that probably most value investors traditionally weren't. They were they were focused on the present. So I think you're you're always you're always having to adapt your principles. Like likewise the the ability to hold a stock for much longer. A lot of the great value investors, like someone like Joel Greenblatt, he would buy something like Moody's, for example, when it was incredibly cheap. And then he'd make a lot of money and he'd sell it because it was no longer very cheap. Whereas someone like Buffett would own it for decades and has made billions of dollars. And so I think that's another thing where there's been a kind of updating of the approach where instead of just selling when it's no longer that cheap, you say, well, no, this is going to continue to grow. It's still a great company. So you can... You, you want to master these traditional principles, these classic timeless principles, like buying things at a discount to what they're worth, but you always have to update them. You always have to say, yeah, but maybe, maybe I want to hold on to a company that's going to be a compounder for many years, even when it doesn't seem cheap.
0: Yeah. I think maybe a, a section I loved was on Nick's sleep and Zach Sakari. And that might be not just because they're, they're the UK contingent. Um, but that might be a good example of of people who um, are really looking at how things are changing. They talk a lot about seeking information with a long shelf life. What type of information is that?
1: Yeah, Nick Sleep and Case Sakari are fascinating. They, they set up this very eccentric, uh, idiosyncratic investment firm called Nomad that was a kind of metaphysical spiritual experiment they were they were exploring the idea of quality what what it would mean to live a high quality life to to run a fund in a high quality way where you treated your partners fairly and and their approach to information was the same so they said okay most investors are focused on all of this ephemeral meaningless information that's going to be out of date in a few weeks so they're they're focusing on quarterly reports they're focusing on um 12 month price targets, they're sitting there glued to their Bloomberg screen trying to figure out the 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 latest move in interest rates or whatever. and, And, and the impact of all of this kind of meaningless short term data. And so Nick would call this wiggle guessing that everyone is is guessing about the wiggles of the market. And he said, I want to focus on stuff that has a much longer shelf life. So I want to focus on information that that is, is going to help me decide whether this company I'm analyzing has a great destination in say five, 10, 15, 20 years. So is, is the company, uh, doing things that are going to expand its moat that it's competitive advantage. Is it, is it treating customers in a way that's going to build their, their love for the company? Are they driving down costs? So they're becoming more efficient. Are they treating their their shareholders honorably? Are they treating their their customers well? Are they treating their suppliers well? Or are they squeezing their suppliers? And so these are all questions with a long shelf life. And so Nick Nick would call this destination analysis. You're looking looking for a a very attractive destination, then you're asking, is this company doing what's going to allow it to reach the destination? And so this way of thinking enabled him and Zach initially to to buy Costco, which was an extraordinary company that, that embodied what they called scale economies shared. And so as it became bigger, as it achieved more scale, it would share those benefits with its customers. And so instead of just lining its own pockets by making more and more money, it would say, okay, well, so we just had all these amazing revenues. let's let's give these cost savings back to the customer to give them an even better deal. And so as they became bigger, it actually, their size became a competitive advantage. And so then when Amazon came along, they saw the same thing and they said, oh, wait a second, this is a company that's driving down costs so much uh, for for its customers. It's so efficient and it's, 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 it's giving its customers so much value that it also has scale economies shared. And so what they ended up doing is buying these enormous positions, both in in Amazon and Costco that they've held for, I think, 18 years so far in the case of Costco and maybe 16 years in the case of Amazon. And so this is a totally different way of viewing the world. And, and it's it's actually it's an incredibly helpful way of viewing your own life of saying, OK, what's what's an appealing long term destination? Where do I want to get? And um What am I doing actually? What are the inputs that are going to help me reach that destination? So this is one of the things I love where you can can take a principle from investing and you can see actually it's so robust, this idea of, 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 of destination analysis, that actually it applies whether you're a company like an Amazon or a Costco that's hugely focused on the long term or whether you're an individual like you and me and you're thinking, okay, so how do I how do I reach the destination where I'm going to have a successful career in 10, 15, 20 years or I'm, I'm going to have a good marriage or I'm going to have a good relationship with my kids? And so always in, in a world where most people are incredibly short term and they and they're wiggle guessing in the market or they're, they're, they're just checking their their Twitter feed or their Facebook um, feed in the short term, they're constantly obsessed with the short term. If you can push your outlook out further so that you're thinking about long-term destinations and how to reach them. It's a huge competitive advantage. So the more the more superficial and short-term the rest of the world becomes, the longer term you want to become. And it, and it's hard. And so we all look at what people like Nick and Zach achieved and we're like, wow, that's so cool that they've owned you know Amazon for 16 years and, and Costco for 18 years or whatever. But it's really hard for us to do it. What
0: do you think think is the main motivation um, behind these investors and why they're investing. Because the way you describe these people, they're very rich, but they're also, th- many of them are thoughtful, unflashy people that seem to have integrity and don't seek the limelight. So it, it's it's hard to see that it's just about the money. What, why do you think these brilliant um, minds have applied themselves to to investing rather than quote-unquote nobler causes such as science or engineering or medicine? I think a
1: lot of them initially are driven by money. I think some of them in the early years, they want to get independence and to have control over their own life and not to be subordinate to um, irritating bosses and um, to have to take orders. So, so sometimes it is money early on. Then there's just the sheer... Um, the sheer joy of the game. I think there's something about how captivating the game is. I I remember Howard Marks saying to me once, uh, we have played and we have won. And there was something very very simple and pure about it, that kind of joy of taking on all of these other people at a game that's very difficult and winning, that's captivating. But I think as people get older, um, at least for the investors I've interviewed, there has to be a little more depth. If it's just about playing this game and becoming rich, it's a pretty stunted life. And I think it's fascinating when you look at someone like, like Nick Sleep or Kate Sakari, for example, that they basically quit at the age of 45 and they returned billions of dollars to their shareholders. And they said, yeah, we're gonna spend the second half of our lives figuring out how to give the money away in, in, in a very similar high quality way. We're gonna to try to find causes that have maximum long-term benefit to society and i I was talking to nick sleep recently and he was saying to me he he was talking about destination analysis with with his charity and he was saying one of the things that he's doing is he, he he tries to do a lot of stuff with um kids early intervention for kids who have very difficult lives and to provide them with with opportunities to um uh to, to go to youth zones where they can work on their resumes or play or any, anything that will help them, them grow. And, and he said to me, I wanna be able to sit down in 20 years time and say, yeah, give the money away well. And he said, the difficult thing is that it's a, I, I'm not judging myself by other people's standards. I'm judging myself by my own standards. But he's like that's also the beautiful thing. i'm I'm judging myself by my own standards. And he said he had a very similar approach with investing. he He wanted to feel that he could sit down as an old man with one of the partners in one of the shareholders in his hedge fund and feel that he had treated them equitably and decently and fairly. So they could sit there and share a glass of wine uh, on on a, on a veranda as the sun was sinking and feel that that he had done the job well. And so that that for me is a beautiful thing, that idea. The, that he's taking his ability to play this game of investing very well in a very rational, hyper-rational way. And then he's using that talent to lift up other people by giving the money away uh, sensibly and in a long-term way. And, and I, I think that just makes for a happier life. I think that's one of the great lessons for me of the, the great investors' lives is that the, the ones the ones who are just focused on amassing billions for the sake of it there's something, there's something about it that makes you feel kind of depleted when you study them. And I, I ended up not really writing about those people. I wanted to focus on the people who, yeah, they're great at the game, but they're not so obsessed with the game that they let everything else go to hell. And, and, and that's, a, that's a good model. I think part, part of what you want to do is hold up alternate models to people and say, you don't actually have to be a snake you to get ahead. You don't have to be a stunted individual who, you know, leaves a trail of lawsuits and, and anger and hatred and bitterness. And, and there, there's a different way of doing capitalism that's a little more enlightened. And I, I remember Charlie Munger saying, I don't want to screw my suppliers. He's like, I, I, why would I want to squeeze my suppliers by not paying them uh, until the last possible minute? He's like, my, my view of life is win-win. And, and the advantage of that is huge. So you see someone like Munger drawing incredible human beings into his life, and so there's a reason why he and Buffett have been partners for for forty or so years. So I I like this fact that the, these people are good game players, but they don't let the money rule their life, and that that that's that's I think a pretty helpful model for the rest of us.
0: Yeah, and it's a great it's a great privilege to be able to give so much back. I enjoyed um, Helmut Friedlander saying, telling you in the 90s that he had lived uproariously.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was one of the most memorable interviews I ever had. And I and I can't actually find my notes from it. And so I couldn't write about it very much. But Friedlander was this extraordinary guy who had fled from Berlin. His his parents were very powerful in the potash business, uh, which in the, I guess it was for fertilizer, if I remember rightly. And he realized his his parents had gone to live abroad and and he he was at school one day i guess it was a college and and heard that the borders were closing because um because war was breaking out and he went to pick up his sister from school who was younger than him and he and he said i stopped to pick up a hat because a gentleman does not travel without a hat and he fled from germany and went to the us and he had this unbelievable life in the US. He was a sort of he was an incredible investor who would he he did everything from trading coffee futures to buying the Empire State Building. And so he's just this great character and he would he he, he wore two watches on one uh, on his wrist. He had a Patek Philippe and then he had this cheap Timex. And and he wouldn't shake my hand because of the germs. And this is, you know, 20 something years ago. This wasn't during COVID. And and he had this amazing bottle of wine on his desk or, or sherry or something. I can't remember. It's like 100 years old. And I said, are you going to drink that? And he's like, oh, yes. He said, I, I had a case of Chateau Petrus recently and I, I drank all of it. Uh, and he said, I have lived uproariously. <laughs> and I just thought, what a wonderful thing to be able to look back at the end of your life and say, I have lived uproariously.
0: <laughs> but I like that you said that you focused on the people that didn't let money. Sort of rule their lives. Do you think? Do you think the Buffets and the Mongers, if they were starting out today, that that they would choose investing again? Because because the world's changed a lot, and and you know you've got this sort of the Robin Hoods and the index funds, and it's not it's not the same landscape that it was. Yeah, the
1: Robin Hoods and stuff have really changed the game, haven't they? There, there's something. Every, everything in our era, era has been kind of turbocharged, so so you were always able to do these dumb things like trade too much and and give in to your short term impulses. And now things like Robin Hood or uh, social media—they've they've just kind of turbocharged our ability to do dumb stuff that hurts ourselves by being short term. And so I, I I have a friend who's a, a very renowned investment writer. who who at one point had set up a a Robin Hood account for himself just to see what it was like and quickly found that he was doing insane stuff. And this is a guy with a superb temperament who understands everything about uh, investing in a long-term way and still into this kind of pit. And so I think when when you see people becoming more and more short-term and you see all of these temptations you just want to look at people like Buffett and Munger and say, well, what 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 would they do? And I I just think they 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 always were wired this way. They were always able to go slower. And they if they were starting now, they, they'd win the game again because they would they they have what what Munger calls the deferred gratification gene. So while everyone else is going for these instant dopamine hits of trading now, you know, you reach you reach for your phone. I, I, you just see people like like Manga, They're more like um, they're more like farmers than traders. They 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 find something they like and then they sit on it forever, or at mm. least for many years. It's a totally different mindset. So yeah, I think I think they would still go into the game, and I think they would still win it because the more short term the rest of us become, the more their temperamental advantage would would stand them in good stead.
0: That, that's a good point. I I had a bit of a a nagging feeling as I was reading the book because it, it makes it sound like a really attractive vocation and that these are really interesting, thoughtful people and wondering how that squares with the reality of smart grads choosing a career of, you know, between investment and other things. I think you
1: have to choose something that's deeply aligned with who you are. And I, th- this has been one of the actual profound influences of the book on me of the process of spending so much time with these people is I can see that they're acting in alignment with who they are in a deep sense. And I I think of someone like Monish Pabright, for example, who's an extraordinary Indian investor who now lives in Austin, Texas, who he he and a friend of mine, Guy Spear, paid $650,000 to have a charity lunch with Warren Buffett a few years ago. And and one of the things that struck them was that Buffett talked about um, living by an inner scorecard. And Buffett said, well, you, you can tell whether you live by an inner scorecard or not, because you, you have to ask yourself this question. Would, would, would I rather be known um, publicly as the best lover in the world, but actually be the worst lover? Or would I rather be known publicly as the worst lover in the world, but actually privately be the best lover in the world? And and what Guy and Monish saw is that is that Buffett lived totally by an inner scorecard. He. He's structured his life in a way that's really true to who he is. And that had a huge impact on Monish and Guy. So when I look at someone like Monish, he, for example, he he goes into the office late. Uh, He has no meetings scheduled at all, no phone calls scheduled, refuses to meet with prospective shareholders because he said, I don't like the whole mumbo jumbo of marketing the fund. And he just sits around reading all day, thinking all day, takes a guiltless nap in the afternoon and and he's just thinking and he, and then occasionally a mispriced gamble will come along where he sees an incredibly cheap stock and he loads up on it and then he goes back to doing nothing basically just reading and thinking and, and and running his charitable foundation which does incredible stuff uh in in india lifting kids out of poverty by by giving them um uh free coaching to to get into the indian equivalent of mit and so he's set up his life in a way that's totally true to who he is and when i When I look at that, that makes me think, okay, so I'm not Monish, I'm not Warren, I don't, I don't want to set my life in a way, uh, set my life up in a way that that's untrue to me. So that makes me really look at everything that I do with a similar filter to say, okay, so why do I want to take on that project? No, I don't want to work for someone I dislike. I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I'd rather, I'd rather give up money than work with somebody I dislike or no, it's really important for me to have control over my schedule. Um, it's really important for me to have time to to read, to think, to meditate, to hang out with my family. and And so these are just very idiosyncratic things. It's just true to who I am. And so just knowing that being aligned with who you are is is critical. Is, has been very valuable to me. It's, it, it, it's, a, it's a really useful filter. You can, you can remove a lot of stuff that, that you just think, no, nah, not gonna do that. I, I remember someone recently saying to me, why, why don't you start a Substack newsletter? You know, everyone's st- starting newsletters. And I'm like, I'm a, I'm a slow, ponderous, contemplative human being. It took me like five years to write this book. Am I really gonna pump out a newsletter every week? It's like, it's the worst thing for me to do. Whereas a podcast, I, was rec- I recently started a podcast and it's like, yeah, I love to sit around and talk to people. That's really fun. That, that suits me. And so I think if there's a takeaway for our listeners, it's just to go through that process of saying, what, what am I built for? What do I actually value? And, and remove a lot of the unnecessary clutter. Because when you look at people like Bill Miller, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, part of their superpower is that they're, they're doing what they're best at and what they love most, and they're pretty much ignoring everything else. And it's, it's, it's almost antisocial. I, I see it with with, uh, with Monish Pabrai, where he would say, look, I'll, I'll have a lunch with someone, and I'll say, did I enjoy that lunch? And he said, if I didn't enjoy that lunch, I will never have lunch with that person again. And he said, if, if, he said when I meet someone, I'll say, is this person gonna make me better or worse? He said, if they're going to make me worse, I'll never talk to them again. And so there is something kind of antisocial about it. But at the same time, constructing a life that's true to you and true to your temperament, true to your principles, true to your priorities. That's a that's a really wonderful thing. And it's 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 helpful to be rich to do that. I think that's one of the things that that the money has given these very successful investors. But but you don't have to be super rich to do that. I mean, I think I think. It, it, it's there are things where you can just say, yeah, I, I'd be I'd be prepared to make fifty thousand dollars a year instead of seventy thousand dollars a year, not to work for somebody I dislike. I, I mean, it's uh, or to live in a slightly smaller house so that you can do work that you you like, the, or or to drive an old car. I mean, it's but once you understand what's valuable to you, then then you can figure out what you're prepared to sacrifice in order to live that way.
0: Yeah. Um, there, there aren't many women in the book, which probably reflects historic trends. Um, there is an interesting section on on Laura Gerrits, who invested a lot in emerging markets. But I'm interested to know if you've interviewed Kathy Wood and and what you think about her investing style.
1: Yeah, I would like to interview Kathy Wood. I I never have, and and there's a part of me that's prejudiced against her approach because she's tended to buy very highly valued expensive hot companies which just temperamentally is not something that i'm aligned with but that doesn't mean she's not great and uh, and so i just i just don't know i have to kind of suspend judgment um the the issue of of there not being very many women in the uh, 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 the sort of pinnacle of the industry is a really complicated one. And, and it, it goes way above my my pay grade to understand it. But it's but there are there are structural issues, there are prejudices, it's it's complicated. And I, I write a bit about it in writing about Laura Gerrits, who who mentioned that when she was starting out in her career, there were just no role models at the f- female role models at the firm where she was working. I, I remember her saying that there was one there was one woman at her firm who had just had a kid and they basically said to her, there is no way you're ever going to get promoted because look, you you can work from 8 a.m. till 5 p.m. And the other people working at this firm, they come in seven days a week, they work till 10 p.m. And she just said you you just looked at it and you could see that that it was going to be really difficult. To, to have balance in your life. And so she, for many years said, look, if I was gonna compete with the men, I knew that I, I, I had to just focus really intensely on, on my work. And then it kind of got away from her and she couldn't have kids and her husband no longer wanted to have kids. It's complicated. And and so there's no simple answer here. And there, there's another very well-known um, woman investor who I, who I interviewed. Um, who I didn't end up writing about, and managed, manages an enormous amount of money. And I remember talking to her about some of the sacrifices she had made, and she has four children. Um, and she said to me, look, I have to exercise really intensely. You know, I, I can't give up exercise, it's really important for my health. I have to put my kids above everything. And then I managed a huge amount of money and have enormous staff, so I have to do that seriously. So she said, at a certain point, I had to decide, I'm not going to see my friends anymore, and I remember saying to her, D- "What do you What do you read? What What's helped you in terms of what you read?" And she said, "I I don't have time to read." I just thought that was really interesting that for her to balance having four kids and a really successful job, there were things she was having to sacrifice, and I, it's painful to talk about this, and it's 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 uncomfortable. Um, but it's, it's, it, 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 just, it just is, it's, it, it's just stuff that you're having to accommodate to. And, and when I look at someone like Laura Garrett's, I'm, I'm just immensely impressed with what she's managed to achieve in a, in a male dominated industry. When she came from, she came from basically a family of, of ca- Kansas farmers and construction workers and factory workers and the like, I mean, she's just, uh, uh, this towering figure, like, uh, like I remember looking at her and thinking, you know, she's kind of this diminutive, soft-spoken, really nice, really modest person. Uh, you know, if, if she were a man, she'd be full of braggadocio and sort of thumping, thumping the the chest and, and puffed out and feeling full of ego. She's very humble. And I just remember thinking, God, this woman is such a warrior to, to have, pushed her way to the top of this business the, the, the courage and the strength and the determination that that took is something kind of awesome about it so so I I'm, I'm I, I hope I'm not offending anyone with any of my sort of hidden biases in talking about this but I, I it's just it's just complicated
0: yeah I agree it's it's really complicated and inevitably there are going to be, have to be sacrifices on both sides. But I, I do think the landscape's getting better. You know, Lots of companies are bringing in equal maternity and paternity leave, and that should be a big way to and try also, and overcome these hurdles.
1: Yeah. And also, again, it's a matter of role models. I, I, I have a 20-year-old daughter, and I, she was, because this book took me so long, um, I would be for five years from the time when she was really a little kid to the time when she was a young woman. Um, I would be going picking her up from school and we'd be talking every day about the book. And I remember her at one point saying, you've got to go big on writing about Laura Garretts. She's the most interesting person in your book. She's an extraordinary character. And, and it was wonderful for me to see that my daughter, who's really an artist and a musician and a writer and the least likely person to become a professional fund manager, was looking at someone like Laura Garretts and seeing real inspiration there. And so I think part of part of it also in driving change is to hold up role models and say, look, you can do it. You can you you can succeed in in this profession coming from very unusual backgrounds with different education, different gender, um, different race and and also a different mindset. Like what we were saying before about holding up people who are behaving in a kind of moral and upstanding and ethical way instead of just. Being snakes who are looking out only for themselves. And so holding up role models is a very powerful thing. And I, I I there is a slightly moralistic aspect of the book where I'm I'm trying to show that there's a better way to do this. And that so when I look at someone like Laura Garretts, for example, I remember her saying to me that she always she, she 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 flies all over the place, right? She in a typical year she would spend six to nine months traveling abroad and she always travels economy class. And she pays for it herself out of her own pocket and she so so she's not saddling her shareholders with those expenses and so i look at something like that and i think that's a really impressive thing somebody who's treating their shareholders honorably and and so when i see fund managers who have egregious expenses that they're where they're getting hugely rich to perform in a mediocre way there's a sort of moral failure there and and so just looking at someone who's become a multi-billionaire while behaving poorly. I'm, I'm just not interested. I'd much rather showcase Laura Garrett, who I think is a deeply admirable human being and also an interesting human being. I mean, dur- during COVID, there was a, I remember talking to her about how she responded to it. And she's such a profoundly intellectual and cerebral and literate person that she basically holed up in a house in Idaho in the middle of nowhere with a stream and 45 books. And she's just sitting there reading. And I just think there's something kind of wonderful about somebody like that who's she's she's building a competitive advantage by understanding the world better than other people, because she's reading more deeply, traveling more. And so I I love the fact that we can hold up examples of of admirable people like like Laura Garrett. So that's that's great. That's part of what I'm up to.
0: Well, I'm sure we could go on and on, but unfortunately, we're out of time. Thank you so much for coming on. That was really interesting.
1: Ah, uh, thank you Mary. It's been such a delight chatting with you.